Detox connects professionals in the life science, medical device, and food industries with useful content like webinars, job openings, articles, and virtual meetings to help you succeed in your career. This Life Science Focus podcast brings together some of our editorial staff to share insights into the latest B2B industry news to keep you up to date. This week on the show, we are discussing a malaria vaccine breakthrough and how sugar may impair brain development in children. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Xtalks Life Science Podcast. I'm Sarah Hand, Editor-in-Chief at Xtalks.com, and this week I'm joined by Aisha Rashid, Sydney Perlmutter, and Mira Nambusi. Thanks for coming today. Aisha, I think you wanted to start us off, so go ahead and take it away. Indeed. So today I wanted to discuss a new study that came out that just shows further how detrimental uh, the impact of sugar can be among children. So uh, we know that children um, in the U.S. are consuming excess amounts of uh, sugar early on in life. And we know that excess sugar is, of course, linked to Um, negative health impacts such as obesity and diabetes. However, a new study now shows that um, excess sugar or high sugar consumption could also lead to impairments in brain development among children and adolescents, and those effects could be seen later on in life in adulthood. So researchers from the University of Georgia and the University of Southern California uh, actually used uh, an animal model and found that high sugar consumption adolescent rats led to poor learning and memory performance. And they found that these cognitive uh, impairments were associated with changes in the gut microbiota uh, induced by high sugar levels. Um, They specifically found that consuming high amounts of sugar early on in life leads to an increase in levels of a specific bacteria called parabacterioides. And so the research uh, shows that daily consumption of sugar-sweetened beverages, specifically during adolescence, can impair Uh, performance on learning and memory tasks during adulthood by affecting the developing hippocampus. And of course, the hippocampus is the region of the brain that regulates learning memory in addition to things like motivation and emotion. And so the researchers knowing that of course, that the hippocampus regulates various cognitive functions and that it still, it develops into late adolescence, Uh, they wanted to learn about how high sugar diets could potentially impact um, development of this uh, region in the brain. Um, In addition, there's also been increasing evidence that the gut microbiome is implicated in neurocognitive development. So given these uh, pieces of information researchers, the, res- uh, they, the scientists hypothesized that uh, high sugar consumption may have an impact on hippocampal function and may be associated with changes in the gut microbiota caused by high sugar intake. So for this study, uh, the researchers gave juvenile rats uh, normal rat chow as well as um, an 11% sugar solution, which is uh, comparable to commercially available sugar-sweetened beverages. 
Um, and then, of course, there was a group that did not receive that sugar solution. So the researchers assessed memory function and anxiety-like behavior during adulthood. Um, and they also conducted gut bacterial and brain transcriptome analyses as part of the, the study. Um, so after being given the 11% uh, sugar solution, the researchers then had the rats perform various memory tasks, and they specifically looked at episodic contextual memory, which involves remembering the context of where you've seen a familiar object before, and they also conducted um, a test to evaluate basic recognition memory, which is a hippocampal independent memory function that involves um, the ability basically to recognize something that you've seen uh, in the past. So when the researchers looked at the results, they found that uh, rats that were given the sweetened solution early in development had an impaired ability to discriminate whether an object was new to a specific context. So that was in relation to that episodic contextual memory test. Um, whereas rats that did not consume the sugar solution were able to um, perform that test um, well without any problems. Interestingly, uh, they found that there was no effect on the rats' overall recognition memory. So the second test, which was the hippocampal independent um, basic um, recognition memory test. So the researchers concluded that it appears that early life sugar consumption seems to selectively impair a hippocampal learning and memory. Um, they also found that chronic sugar consumption was not associated with any uh, weight gain or anxiety-like behavior. So to further explore the mechanisms underlying their observations, the scientists uh, conducted taxa-specific microbial enrichment experiments to examine and look at the functional relationship between sugar-induced microbiome changes and neurocognitive and brain transcriptome outcomes. And through their um, evaluation and analyses, they found that high sugar consumption led to higher levels of two specific types of bacteria in the genus Parabacterioides. And that um, levels of these bacteria were negatively correlated with hippocampal function. So to assess this mechanistic, potential mechanistic link between um, elevated levels of these bacteria uh, and memory and learning, the researchers experimentally elevated levels of these bacteria in the microbiome of rats and uh, that did not consume sugar. And they found that just by elevating the levels of those bacteria that um, the animals actually showed that there were negative impacts or impairments in both hippocampal um, dependent and independent memory tasks. So basically the bacteria alone could induce uh, those same kinds of cognitive deficits on their own. Um, as And in addition, actually, um, in the sugar, high sugar diets, they actually found that there was no impact on the hippocampal independent memory tasks, but uh, here they actually found that these bacteria could actually impact uh, that aspect as well. So the researchers say that, um, again, early life sugar, as they call it, increased levels of these bacteria and the animals did worse when those levels were um, high.
So this research is very interesting and uh, really identifying a mechanistic link here between high sugar consumption and uh, cognitive impairments that can last into later uh, adulthood. So this is a, uh, a matter of great concern because as we know, excess sugar consumption among children and teens um, is a concerning trend and has negative impacts for physical health as we knew, but now as well, uh, cognitive health. So I think in light of this study, um, my question to you is, um, you know, Mira and Sydney, you both are food writers. How do you think we can better regulate um, excess sugar or added sugar in a lot of food products? Because that's obviously a major source um, of added sugar in the diets of children and kids and adolescents. Just before I answer, I just want to clarify, you are referring to, um, you know, added sugars and not mm -hmm. like natural sugars, sugars from fruit. Exactly. Right. Okay. Well, that's a tough question. Um, I feel like a lot of that education has to come from the home that you grow up in. I feel like you're so heavily influenced by w what food is put on the table. And as children and young people, you tend not to have too much of a choice and you just eat what is put in front of you. And that also means uh, that parents and caretakers and whatnot have to be educated on, on it as well. Um, but in order to regulate it, I think further research will have to be done because I feel like with studies like these, it's sometimes hard to to know if that correlation is is you know real. Um, although this study seems uh, indicative that there there is this link. Um, but yeah, that's a really good question. Sugar is one of those things that it doesn't seem dangerous, and in moderation, it's not. But it definitely. Uh, has some dangerous impacts when when it's overconsumed. So moderation is is a huge thing because um, you don't want to fully take sugar out of diets. Yeah. Like children want to be able to enjoy food and you know cereals and juices and whatnot. But yeah, a lot of the education I think will have to come from the home um, and just being aware, looking at those labels, looking at you know better alternatives because um, juices and cereals are definitely high in sugar and there are better options out there. Um, that are still delicious and kids would, would like. Yeah, I was going to say, in terms of <clears throat> regulating sugar, I think it's kind of hard hard to do that at this, like, at this point in research. I think more research needs to be done in order for an FDA to release a regulation to strictly prohibit sugar, for example, or along those lines, which I think would be really tough to do. Um, last week in our food podcast, we were talking about synthetic mm -hmm. dyes and how that's being used because, you know, it creates more colorful products to be sold to children. I think in this case, sugar is kind of similar um, in the sense of like uh, people want sweet things and they're going to do that by purchasing sugary items. But definitely, like Sydney was saying, I think it takes um, a household to um, implement the ideas of overconsumption of sugar to limit the consumption of sugar. Um, yeah, those are my thoughts about that. Yeah, I know a few years ago, I want to say 2018, I think the FDA um, updated their nutrition label requirements. 
um, to include like an added sugars category. So when you're looking at a nutrition label, when it says, you know, how much sugar, how many grams of sugar are in the product, um, you're right, Sydney, it's hard to know how much of that is coming from like natural fruit sugars and sugars that uh, are still sugar, but are, are coming from a natural source. And how many of those grams are coming from, you know, corn syrup or whatever that's been added to artificially sweeten the product. Um, or I shouldn't say artificially, but add add more sweetener to the product. Um, so I think that's helpful. I, I'm not sure whether or not that's been implemented yet. That's probably something for us to look into. But uh, I think that's definitely helpful for parents in this case to be able to like look at the products and see, and see the nutrition label and see how many um, grams of added sugar there are. Um, I think it's tough though. I think there's a lot of products that are marketed as um, healthy things like yogurts, you know, some cereals, um, definitely like snack bars. Uh, and they have, you know, quite a bit of like unnecessary added sugar there. So I think it can be really tough for um, for parents to look at this. And yeah, just going back to what you said as well, Sydney, about, um, you know, maybe we need more research. And it is true that this was research that was conducted in an animal model and, you know, quite a common animal model that we see in a lot of research. Um, that we would expect those results to translate to humans, but it's still not, you know, 100%. Rats are still yeah. different from humans, so there might be something um, different there. And of course, there's ethical concerns with <laughs> conducting this type of study, you know, in kids. You'd really have to do an observational study and see, okay, these are kids who are consuming a lot of sugar. What's their their memory and, and learning like later in life? So, yeah, I'm. Those all those are all great points. I, I'm just wondering if we might see, you know, one day, um, even some sort of warning labels. You know how I mean this is, you know, not the same kind of idea, but you know, for smoking, how you see those health warning labels that you know it's uh, detrimental to your health and whatnot. And you know, could mm. we perhaps see the same thing for added sugar one day? You know, just. Um, warning labels it's like okay this is a product um, you know we have the labels for how much sugar is in it but then there's also a warning to go along with it I mean the you know the impacts of uh, excess sugar are, are known in terms of obesity and uh, diabetes and these things are on the rise in among children especially in the U.S. and I think um, it'd be in, I'd be interested to see if those are things that um, you know like regulators and people in the food industry are, are willing to entertain. It might be kind of a stretch to think that right now, but who knows? Um, because it, I think yeah. there's so much, you know, and with this study, and of course it's in an animal model, but I think the the negative impacts of excess sugar are recognized. And in the U.S., I think um, children consume at times more than three times the recommended amount of, of, of sugar. And uh, and so mm. it, it is a problem that I think is only growing. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, kind of maybe like a please consume responsibly yeah. type label that you'd see on alcohol. Yeah, maybe exactly. not as like in your face as like a cigarette yeah. carton um, label, but but something, For, yeah, some little word health, you know, dental health. And, you know, there are a whole host of mm. uh, health conditions that could be addressed. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think even regardless of the studies, we're like we know, already exactly. know, yeah. um, we already know the impacts of of um, you know excess sugar consumption, and I think it really has to you know be instilled in someone at a young age. Um, I mean, for example, I have quite a sweet tooth, and I'm not blaming <laughs> my parents for that. But now that I've gotten older, I know that I need to regulate it and not consume too much. But as a child, you know, if you're just given it, you don't know that it could be potentially harmful, and you may develop habits that don't go away or at least are hard to get rid of. So yeah, regardless of the research, definitely a good um, a good thing to, to implement or at least try and teach your children at a young age. And so I that, think, yeah, you know. you know what? And with respect to that, I think the education even has to start with parents, you know? Um, I can like look at my parents. They're very, you know, very well-educated people. But, you know, when you tell them, oh, that this granola bar has so much sugar or this cereal has so much sugar, they're like, really? It doesn't taste, you know, sweeter. You know, all those hidden sugars really kind of add up. And I think a lot of parents mm-hmm. themselves may not realize that if they take a look at apple juice, like, oh, it's apples. It's healthy, right? So maybe there needs to be education mm-hmm. on the part of parents too. Um, I, I mean, I think nowadays, of course, I'm talking about my generation, but um, perhaps there are mm-hmm. still parents out there, um, despite a lot more awareness among newer parents these days. But um, yeah, I think education all around is definitely important. Yeah, I think a big push, I'm a parent of a uh, two-year-old and I think one thing that we really learned um, was that they no longer recommend giving your kids juice pretty much at all I think by this point a lot, a lot of kids probably our generation would have had juice I think under the age juice. of two I think it's like completely um, like not recommend no sugar yeah they just yeah. don't recommend it yeah. the, the nutritional benefits do not outweigh the amount of sugar and oftentimes kids who have had juice early um, refuse to then drink anything <laughs> but juice and so you get into this cycle of having to um, feed your kid watered down juice in order to have them get any sort of you know water mm-hmm. so I think that's one thing that um, the pediatricians and other doctors really try and hammer home for new parents now is you know the juice the juice is not um, not sort of a necessary thing to their their development and I, I think there's also kind of like a, a psychological component at play here as well. I think um, when during childhood and that developmental stage, when sweet things and desserts are kind of made to be um, treats or rewards for mm. doing something good, I think you carry that over into yeah. adulthood and it turns into this thing of... Um, oh, I, you know, I deserve that, or uh, I, you know, achieved this thing, I'm going to treat myself. I, I think when it can just be incorporated into a regular diet and say, hey, sometimes we have dessert, and that's like fine and normal, um, but it's not a thing where you earned this, um, I think that changes the conversation a bit and hopefully fosters more healthy eating habits, you know, as the children grow up. Yeah, sugar has definitely become very, very stigmatized and, um, and so, yeah, mm-hmm. you want to steer away from that as well, right? Because um, the more, and especially among children, right? The more you're restricted from something, the more they're going to want it and crave mm-hmm. it. And yeah, need to yeah. find that balance for sure. Yeah, definitely. All right, so moving on to 
another story. Um, it was World Malaria Day on April 25th. And so the theme of World Malaria Day 2021 was reaching the zero malaria target, which the World Health Organization and its partners marked by celebrating the achievements of countries that are approaching and achieving malaria elimination. Now, also to mark this day, um, uh, there was uh, a story that I came across just in time for it, and it was uh, very, very interesting that uh, basically a malaria, a new malaria vaccine um, has shown a high efficacy of 77%. And really, this might be the magic bullet, as I like to call it, that the world may have been waiting for against the deadly disease. Um, so after years and years of disappointing malaria vaccine trials, this new malaria vaccine developed by researchers at the Jenner Institute at the University of Oxford has uh, shown a very unprecedented high level efficacy, which has never been seen before for an experimental malaria vaccine. Uh, so just to put into context, um, the, pre, the only known uh, other viable malaria vaccine has a demonstrated efficacy of only 55% or so, and it's currently the world's only licensed malaria vaccine, but it doesn't work very well, and it dates back to the 1980s. So we were really due for uh, a new, a better, and a much more effective vaccine for malaria. And so the Oxford malaria vaccine was evaluated in a trial that was conducted in Burkina Faso. And the trial was conducted among 450 children who were followed for 12 months. Uh, the study was published in The Lancet. And the authors note that this shot was the first to meet the WHO's malaria vaccine technology roadmap goal of a malaria vaccine with at least 75% efficacy. And so that goal was met, which is uh, pretty amazing. And uh, so basically, just going into the trial a little bit, um, they evaluated the vaccine among children aged 5 to 17 months. Um, in Burkina Faso because uh, the country has a high seasonal malaria transmission and they evaluated three different doses as well as two different doses of an adjuvant uh, developed by Novavax. And they found that the uh, low-dose adjuvant group, um, the efficacy of the vaccine was 74%, and in the high-dose adjuvant group, the efficacy was 77%. And so again, like this is very, very huge. And it's been such a challenge to develop a highly effective vaccine against malaria because, um, of course, given the coronavirus pandemic that we're in right now and having vaccines for that develop so quickly, um, and this is because uh, coronaviruses only have about a dozen genes or so compared to thousands of genes um, in malaria parasites. And so that's why it's been so much more difficult to develop a vaccine, uh, an effective vaccine against malaria. And so once this vaccine is approved by regulators, um, the Serum Institute of India, which is a partner uh, of the University of Oxford on this project says that it'll be ready to deliver more than 200 million doses of the vaccine. 
and uh, malaria continues to be a global problem, uh, particularly in Africa. It's one of the where it's one of the leading causes of childhood mortality. And so, an effective malaria vaccine was long overdue and is a much needed tool to really change the face of the disease on the continent and the impact that it's uh, uh, having on children. So. As I um, touched on, uh, I mean, we have these highly effective vaccines for uh, against COVID-19, and they were developed in record time in less than a year. And to see that we only now have an effective uh, malaria vaccine that meets requirements of, you know, of that 75% threshold, so this is 77%, um, it's kind of bittersweet in a sense to me because um, just seeing that the potential that we have to develop vaccines quite rapidly is there, but it took so long for it to be for this malaria vaccine uh, to sort of come out and meet that. But going forward, um, and of course, malaria is a much more con it's much more complex to develop a vaccine against. But I think we do have the technologies now. But going forward, I think we've discussed this uh, before as well. But do you think that uh, the example that the COVID nineteen vaccines have set in terms of their time to development will help and aid um, vaccine development against other diseases like malaria? Because you know it's not just one vaccine that we might need. We probably need more. Yeah, I think um, I think this is great, and it's great to see that you know R and D for other vaccines to treat or prevent infectious diseases um, have continued during the pandemic. I think you know we're just yeah. hammered with news about COVID, and it's obviously like affecting everyone right now. But it's good to see that these projects weren't completely put on hold um, in order to you know shift towards uh, COVID research. Um, I think it's great. I think it, it probably, as you said, took a long time to get such uh, an efficacious vaccine developed because of the complexity of, a, you know, a parasite versus a virus. Um, and I know for a long time, I think malaria prevention uh, really relied on physical means mm. just to prevent um mosquito bites basically so a lot of use of nets and long sleeves and um, bug spray and that sort of thing and then of course for travelers anti-malarial medications and things um, I think it's good I, I don't know whether this also took so long uh, you know because this isn't affecting people in the west I, I think um, that's certainly unfortunate but i'm wondering if that's sort of played into this maybe there there aren't as many people doing malaria research um and uh, to sort of get to your question i'm not sure whether the speed at which we were able to get covid vaccines uh, developed and uh, authorized and in the arms of people, whether or not that's going to affect development of future vaccines and drugs and things. I don't know. I, I feel like the companies doing the, the R&D work will almost yeah. expect it, um, but I'm not sure whether or not FDA um, or other world regulators are going to um, budge at all on, on some of these regulations. And I'm not sure whether um, just seeing the public's reaction and discomfort in a way to how quickly these vaccines were developed and concerns over safety um, 
I'm not sure whether, you know, the public would feel comfortable with um, vaccines that in the future that don't take as much time to be developed or drugs or things like that. I'm not sure. I think there'll be a lot of conversation around that. Certainly, though, when the dust settles a little and the pandemic is more under control globally. Yeah, I'm also very happy to hear that other, you know, illnesses and diseases have been still, uh, you know, there's still been research on them. Um, and this is fantastic news. And I think a few weeks back, I read about a um, AIDS or HIV vaccine um, that was in the works. Um, and I was really happy to see that as well, because you're right, Sarah, like, who knows if if this would have been, you know, brought to light had it not been for the pandemic or had it not been for the fact that yeah, it only affects a certain population and, and really doesn't touch many people in the West. So I mm-hmm. really hope that going forward, um, you know, they can learn from the vaccine development from COVID and apply that to everybody because mm-hmm. vaccines are definitely effective and we know this. And um, yeah, it should prevent, hopefully prevent a lot of illness and death. And Aisha, did they mention anything um, in their study about storage conditions for this vaccine? We've seen how much of an issue that's been for some of the COVID vaccines, obviously. Um, so I'm wondering what the yeah uh, nothing the notable. I can go, are. Into, go back to the study. I think I didn't really look into that, but I would imagine if there was like an ultra free, an ultra cold storage situation, that that would definitely have been mentioned because, mm-hmm. of course, that was a huge problem mm-hmm. with um, some of right. the COVID vaccines that had to be stored at like minus seventy and such. But I did not come across that. But uh, I can pull up the study. Um, to look more into that but yeah I mean I would hope that that's not a you know the case just given where the vaccines would need to be distributed and and it's going to be in these developing countries um, in Africa and Mm -hmm. so cold storage Mm -hmm. is definitely an issue there yeah Mm -hmm. yeah I was gonna say that if they had a issue with um, you know the temperature of the vaccine that might be tough in places like Africa mm-hmm. um, because it's such warm climate mm-hmm. but definitely targeting malaria is, yeah. is such a huge thing because so many people are affected by it and um, it's really hard to prevent when there's like the spread is so fast and so vast that uh this is really cool. And I and I love that vaccines are being shed a light on um, after the pandemic or during the pandemic, because now we all know the process and, you know, how effective these things are, like Sydney was saying. So I just I just find it really awesome that we're all talking about vaccines in mainstream media. Yeah, I think it's we kind really of took cool. it for granted. I mean, you know, like as soon yeah. as we're born, you know, we get our, you know, requisite shots and you just get it over with. And, and we don't really give... I don't know. We never really gave it a second thought, but um, the pandemic has certainly put it into perspective yeah. and really, you know, um, highlighted how important they are in really protecting us and, you know, and against diseases that could be so deadly, right? Like, if you think about a polio, like, yeah. you know, you pe- people would die from it and be left with, like, debilitating disabilities. So it's, uh, we're very fortunate mm-hmm. that, uh, yeah. You know, we have these vaccines. A part of me worries about um, post-pandemic uh, processes of regulating or, you know, going through the vaccine process of regulating them in countries and how that priority system is going to be 
to work what's more important than the other you know what I mean because of COVID COVID's been the most you know important vaccine to develop nowadays mm-hmm. but now we're seeing like malaria as Aisha was saying and and HIV as Sydney was saying how mm. is that priority going to play a part in society I don't know that worries me a little bit I feel like a lot of politics will play a part in that to say which countries need the fastest you know vaccine growing regulations or whatever it is but I that's wonder. a good point yeah, yeah and I think regulators like can't uh, the FDA only has um, so much bandwidth to work within and so they can't just say we're going to prioritize everything now yeah. right there's got to be yeah. some sort of uh, as you say like um, hierarchy in a way yeah. I guess and I think to an extent they have that put in place you know they they hand out some of those um, priority review waivers and things for for drugs um, that are designed to treat diseases that represent a great unmet need or for which there aren't any current treatments. Um, so maybe they'll still work within that framework, you know, if they decide to kind of loosen any regulations. Um, that's an interesting point, though. I was just going to mention as well, a few years ago, um, we published a story on Xtalks. This was back in 2015, so six years ago now, um, about some research uh, that was aimed at slowing or stopping the spread of malaria using gene editing. So I think it was when CRISPR was really new, Mm. big news. um, And some researchers were kind of trying to do that. So, so targeting the um, vector, which is the, the mosquitoes that transmit malaria to see if that could Mm. slow the spread or stop the spread, but not sure where that research is now, but it's interesting to see the different approaches that have been taken to, um, you know, prevent the spread of, these infectious diseases. Absolutely. Yeah, when I traveled to um, South Africa, I, I want to say like four years ago, I was given these malaria pills. I don't know if you guys have ever been on those, but those are um, quite interesting pills because they have such adverse side effects, like mm. hallucinations and things like that. Really? Oh, really? Yeah, it was really weird. Like at some point, like I had to stop taking them because I was like, this is everything's wow. so much more vivid and things like that. It was just weird. It was like my dreams were a lot more vivid and. I I felt like I was hallucinating, not in real life, but like maybe in my sleep cycle. Mm. But yeah, after I came back, I was like, guys, like these malaria pills are some interesting doses. (laughs) So yeah, like I would have definitely loved to have, you know, a malaria vaccine rather than taking, you know, malaria pills and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. But yeah, I don't know. So funny. I I wonder if one of those medications was uh, chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine, right? That was being pushed for COVID by certain (laughs) segments of people without any testing. So that's very interesting to know. Wow. Yeah, it was so funny. Yeah. Yeah, that was that whole phase where, yeah, it's like a malaria drug. It hasn't been tested in COVID, but Mm -hmm. somehow it's going to cure COVID. Oh, thank God for research and scientists (laughs) who do the work. (laughs) All right. Great. Well, um, that's the end of this episode of the X Talks Life Science Podcast. If you like today's show, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks, everyone, and see you all next week. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to the X Talks Life Science Podcast. If you enjoyed our discussions today, please share the episode with your friends and colleagues and be sure to subscribe in order to be notified when a new episode is released. 
To join in on the discussion, you can find X Talks on social media. Email podcast at xtalks.com or comment on the articles directly. Links are in the show description. Take a moment to join our community at xtalks.com to get access to everything we have to offer, including webinars, job listings, virtual meetings, articles, and more. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers sharing them. They should not be taken as professional advice and do not necessarily reflect the policy or position Honeycomb Worldwide. For further information, email us at podcast at xtalk.com. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week.